talk to you there. I'm here. All right, so fun with technology. Um, so everybody, sorry about that. Uh, I see we have, we're up to about, um, we're over 200. I know we have a lot of people dialing in today. Um, and we have asked Wallace, the, the moderator, just to thank for that. Um, as many of you know, he is an accomplished author. And I would argue uh, the foremost, uh, one of the foremost evaluation experts in the world, uh, professor of NYU. And, um, and we're very excited to have him on today. So um, if it's okay, the way we kind of uh, decided to do this call is, I thought we could start off, uh, which is a little different than our normal format, is going to give us a few minutes on, you know, the way he's thinking about the equity risk premium, and then um, some of the other valuation metrics that he looks at. Then we're going to go to some Q&A, and actually, I also have uh, survey results that you and I talked about that we can go over that might fit into some of the things you're talking about. So with that, why don't we turn it over to you to kick things off, and I have your slides here, so just walk me through the slides uh, as you want me to change them. I can click them too, right? There's, a, and there's an arrow, so if I click them, there, I should be able to move the arrow, right? Okay. You should yeah. know that it's not just a next page. It just, uh, okay. So let, we, we don't have much time. One of the luxuries of being a professor is time is never a constraint. So for me, 30 minutes is what it, uh, what it takes just to get my name out there. So uh, let, me get to the, let me cut to the chase. Um, uh, if there is one number that I think encapsulates everything in the equity market, it's to me the equity risk premium. And if you think about what, I mean, what, what, what we mean when we say equity risk premium, it's the price of risk in the equity market. So let me start off with some unassailable facts, because I'm going to give you a lot of opinion, and you can disagree with me, but these are facts. There is a price of risk in every market. In the equity market, we call it the equity risk premium. In the bond market, it's a default spread. In the real estate market, it takes the form of a cap rate. But in every market, there's a price of risk, a premium we charge for being in that market. And the question is what that price of risk is. The second unassailable fact is you cannot invest without having a sense of what that number is right now. What is the market paying you for risk? And thirdly, how you use that number will depend on what your investment philosophy is. Today, I'm going to talk about the contrast between how a market timer uses the equity risk premium and how a stock selector uses the equity risk premium. But let's, let's step back. If you think back to your finance classes, you think about how this equity risk premium was, was taught to you, just like it was taught to me, I was taught to look backwards. In fact, the database I used, and many of you probably used this, was the Ibbotson database that went back, went, went back to 1926. And the premium that was computed was a historical equity risk premium. So let's start with that historical risk premium because in a sense, that is the premium that I think most of us are taught. A few general propositions about risk premiums, and these are obvious, you might as well put them in the Risk premiums and prices move in opposite directions. So the higher the, the higher the premium gets, the lower the price becomes. And any statement you make about that premium is really a statement about what you think about markets. So if you say the equity risk premium right now is too high, you're basically telling me stock prices are going to go up because premiums are going to come down. If you say the risk premium is too low, that's the same thing as saying stock prices are too high. So let me start with a historical premium number that so many of us are, are um, and I'll come back to this page, that so many of us are shown in class. So here's what a historical premium is. It's not rocket science. You go back 60, 70, 80 years, you look at what you'd have made investing in stocks over that period, and what you'd have made investing in T-bills or T-bonds, and you take the difference. 
So at the start of 2018, for instance, that number for U.S. stocks, if you look at the compounded average going back all the way to 1928, was about 4.77%. What does that tell you? Over that period, if you'd invest in stocks instead of T-bonds on a compounded basis, you'd have made 4.77%. And this is how I would start to estimate equity risk premiums. Look backwards, take the historical number, and use it as the expected number going forward. It's amazing how much of finance is built on mean reversion and how much of mean reversion is built from the fact that much of what we know in finance was learned in the United States in the last century, the most mean reverting economy and market of all time. We're spoiled and we're lazy. We assume that everything reverts back to the way it used to be. And this is something that for a century we got away using without ever getting challenged. I think those days are behind us. I, I don't, even if we're going to revert back to a mean, I don't think it's going to be the mean from the 1950s, 60s, 70s. So for the last 20 years, I've been on this mission, obsession, you could call it, of trying to estimate a forward-looking premium that's dynamic. Why dynamic? Because we know equity risk premiums should change over time. They should reflect the economic fundamentals, the potential for catastrophic risk. So as the world changes, you'd expect the equity risk premium to change. So starting by... Yes. Yeah, so, um, if you point the slide, let me know, um, just because some people are asking uh, on the chat. I'm sorry, what? If you want to point the slide, just let me know, because a couple of people asked. Oh, I was clicking on the slides. The slides are not showing up on, uh, as I was, no, so no, I'm, no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm on slide five right now. So, you know, you can, if you can go forward to slide five, that's the historical risk premium. In fact, you know, so the historical risk premium is essentially looking back. So for the last 20 years, I've been on this obsessive mission of trying to figure out a forward-looking premium that changes with the times. So you turn to page six. What you will see is my attempt at computing, an, at, at computing a forward-looking premium. And here's what a forward-looking premium looks like. It's, a, it's on page six. Basically, think of what we do in the bond market, right? If, you, if I ask you to compute the forward-looking return you'd make on a bond, a yield to maturity, here's what we do. We take the price of the bond, we take the coupons and the face value, and we solve for that discount rate that makes the present value of those cash flows equal to the price of the bond. It's an internal rate of return, a yield to maturity in the bond. I stole that concept in the bond market and started trying it on the equity market. So that is for the first time, maybe in the early 90s, but I'll take you to an updated number. January 1st, 2018, I took the S&P 500, which was at 2,673.81. So let's assume instead of buying a bond, you bought the entire S&P 500. You can do that, right? I mean, in today's day and age, buying the entire index is not a problem. So instead of buying a bond, you bought the 500 largest market cap stocks in the U.S. Instead of coupons, here's what you hope and pray you will get. You hope and pray you get cash flows. We know what those collective cash flows were in the 12 months leading into January 1st, 2018. And in those 12 months, the collective cash flow stayed in an S&P 500 units would have been about 108.28. Notice about 60% of those cash flows will come from buybacks, but it is what it is. That's how companies return cash. So here's what I know. I know what you paid for stocks. I know what the cash flows were in the last 12 months. I have to project our cash flows in the future. So here's where I have to look outwards again. This is not a question of what I think about the market. It's what market participants think about future growth. So basically, I look for analyst estimates, not bottom-up, but top-down estimates. 
Bottom-up would be taking each company's growth rates and aggregating them. Top-down is looking at analysts, look at the entire S&P 500. And at the start of 2018, their expectation was that growth for the next five years would be about 7.05%. Why so high? About half that growth they were projecting as coming from the tax cut in the next year or two, pushing up earnings. So 7.05% growth. I'm almost home. Here's what I do. I take the cash flows from the last 12 months. I grow them at 7.05% for the next five years, and then I stop. Why? Because these are the 500 largest, largest market cap stocks. You can't expect their earnings to keep growing at a rate faster than the economy forever. So after year five, I put the growth rate down to what are my best estimates the growth rate of the economy is. And I've cheated for a long time and used my risk-free rate as my proxy for that growth rate, which is 2.41%. That's it. I've got everything I need. I know what you paid for stocks, 2,673.61. I have your expected cash flows for the next five years. I have the expected growth in perpetuity after the fifth year. I solve for the discount rate. At the start of 2018, that number would be 7.49%. You net out the risk-free rate of 2.41%. The equity risk premium at the start of 2018 would be 5.08%. It's a forward-looking dynamic premium. Why dynamic? Because as the index changes, that premium will change. So some of you might read my blog, you might know that I computed the premium every day from February 1st to February 8th, that, that, that week where the world looked like it was coming apart. And the premium just in that, in that seven-day period increased by 0.5%. So because we're looking at a forward-looking number and it's based on what you pay, that this number would reflect what's going on around you. So let's turn to, to slide seven to get a sense of what you're going to do with this risk premium. If your job requires you to be market neutral, and I would argue that 90% of people who do valuation, their job description, even if it doesn't say it, requires market neutrality. You're an equity research analyst. Your job is to tell me what stocks to buy, not to tell me what the S&P 500 would do. We adopt market timing hats when we shouldn't be. I come to you because I want to buy a target company. I want you to tell me what the value of the company is, given where the market is, not give me an exercise in market timing. So if your job does not require, requires you to be market neutral, you should be using the implied premium as of right now. So at the start of March, for instance, of 2018, this number was about 4.96%. Yesterday, it was about 5%. If I'm valuing a stock today, that is going to be my equity risk premium for the U.S., and it's a shifting number because the market is shifting. However, you know, if your job is market timing, you can look at this equity risk premium and ask a very simple question. Do I like the number? Is it too high? Is it too low? And to answer that, let's look at page eight because this will give you some history that you can use to gauge where we are today. I told you the premium right now is about 5%. Is that a high number or a low number? Depends on what you compare it to. If you compare it to the premium from 19, and these are all implied premiums from 1960 to 2017, the number looks high. In fact, you could argue that stocks have room to go, go up. If you compare it to the premium over the last 10 years, post-crisis premiums, it looks low. So it is very clear that what you think about the market will depend on what you compare it to. But it is not an obvious outlier. I mean, what would be an obvious outlier? Look at the end of 99. The peak of the dot-com boom, the implied equity risk premium in the U.S. was 2%. If you looked at that number and said, that number is way too low, that's the same thing as saying stocks are overpriced. So if, you, if there's talk of a bubble, what, 
what I find that, you know, that is not consistent with talk of a bubble is the premium is not some strange number, two, one and a half, three percent. It's at about five percent. We can argue what to, what to do in the future. And in fact, if you think about, about value of stock, and if you look at page nine, you can build in your expectation of an equity risk premium into, into the value of the S&P 500 and essentially come up with a measure of what you think the index should be worth now. If I just use the implied premium and the numbers, I'm going to come up with the conclusion the stocks are where they need to be. But you can value the entire market. To do that, you have to take a stand on what the growth is going to be for the future rather than take analyst estimates. You have to take a stand on what the equity risk premium should be, not what it is. And you might even take a stand on where the T-bond rate is going to end up after the turmoil settles and inflation is nailed up. And I, you know, I'm, I'm reaching the end of my 10 minutes, so I'll just uh, conclude by saying I looked at three possible scenarios in the recent, recent blog post. One is I looked at what would happen if inflation were, you know, inflation were the culprit, that inflation returned. And when you look at inflation returning, the news is pretty bad because even though higher inflation feeds into higher growth and a higher T-bond rate, the value of the index drops off. If, on the other hand, your story is a real growth story, it's a much more positive story. The stocks are undervalued. So I think the big, the big debate we're going to see play out in markets, and you're going to see this almost on a day-to-day -day basis, is this tussle between inflation and real growth. If inflation is what's causing nominal growth to go up, that's more bad news. If it's real growth that's pushing up growth, it's good news. And you can actually see it play out in the index. And you know you can make your own conclusions. I know what I'm good at and I know what I'm bad at. And I'm awful at market timing. So not surprisingly, when I try to come up with my melded version, I almost always come up close to the market. That's more a reflection of my biases, which is on the market level, I have zero that I bring to the table. I'm not going to have the hubris to tell you stocks are under or overvalued collectively. So to me, equity risk premiums are a number that I track and I track consistently. I've been doing it at the start of every month since September of 2008. And it's a number that I think captures where the market is much better than a PE ratio, Shiller PE, or any of the numbers we're so used to tracking over time because this equity risk premium reflects everything about the market. It reflects what you're paying for stocks, the growth rate, interest rates, and that's the way we should be thinking about this process is not in terms of what's, you know, what the historical premium is, but what we think a fair premium should be given that we're investing in stocks. So I'm going to pause right there and open up for Dennis first for questions and anybody else in the audience, I'm glad to answer any questions you have. And as I said, this is one of my pet obsessions and I don't have all the answers, but I have lots of potential answers. Sure. So Yeah. I think you nailed it as far as the, um, the what's going to be the, the driver of, of the market potentially, which is this push and pull between growth relative to inflation risk. Mm -hmm. um, so, related to that, I think, is that I'm not going to suggest you have a strong view either way, but in your melded version, it's kind of a blah for a market return point of view. Right. And granted, you're not really well, it's not a it's, that. Yeah. It's a blah in the sense if you view 8% of a blah return. To me, 8% on stocks is a solid return. We're so spoiled. We want 20% returns every year. And you cannot have an equity risk premium be a fair premium if you're going to earn a 20% premium. So it is true. You will earn about 8% at, 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 at the melted version.
Did everybody did any did you break out the UK separately because with the with the break? about when you talk about the disruptors, but it's never fun to talk about when you talk about the disruptive. 
Maybe the big game for the next five years is not to pick the winners, but to, but to look at the losers. Who are the losers from this dominance? And perhaps start making bets against those losers because there are going to be a lot of losers in this business if these companies continue to grow at the rate that they are. Ten stocks can make the market go into a negative territory very quickly this month. You take the yes. top down. So a question from, a, uh, from, the, uh, from the chat here, uh, so I'm just going to read it to you. How okay. reliable is your buyback number, which is used along with dividends? Isn't it gross, not net, especially of option solution, which overstates it? There's much debate okay. about what net buybacks are, but they could be coming out of an accumulated cash, not earnings. Okay. Why not use a 10-year average to smooth out buyback? I do, I do all of the I do all of the above. If you go to my Excel spreadsheet, I give you your menu. I give an entire menu equity risk screen, depending on how you want to define it. Ten-year averages, net cash yield. This is the number that I've tracked for the longest time. The other numbers, all, all the numbers move together. I'll give you what the net cash yield number looks like. It looks like it's about four and a half percent right now. So it's about five, you get four and a half percent. This option thing is vastly overstated. I think that first, since 2007, the number of companies granting options has dropped precipitously. Now most companies grant restricted stock. And the companies that actually buy back stock, the amount of stock bought back to cover option exercises is a tiny percentage of total buybacks. So the buyback number I do get from S&P, uh, the net cash, so basically I just download all 500 companies from S&P Capital IQ. I can do every single number. So I do variance the equity risk it ranges from 4% if you use uh, the normalized cash yield where you bring your earnings down and the payout ratio down all the way up to 6% if you define it as, you know, the yield rising to a 10% yield. 4 to 6% is the range, which might strike you as a big range, but remember that historical premium of 4.77%, that range is between 1 and 9%. So basically, historical premiums are ranges that so dominate my standards that I can live with a lot of noise. So, Mark, do you want to ask? Uh, we, we talked about this um, briefly, and just for a quick, quick comments, just because it's towards the end here. Any kind of preliminary thoughts? I know you're doing work on it right now on Spotify, Dropbox, and yeah. some, some of the ways you're thinking about that. I was just writing Spotify. In fact, I'm going to put up my blog today. You know, and top down here, here's the, the basic challenge you face. Um, the company has about $5 billion in revenues. It's growing at about 50%, but that growth rate is coming down. One of the reasons it's been more insulated than Pandora, Pandora's been devastated by Apple Music coming in and taking away their core business, is Spotify is more global. So there is that growth potential. The key number for Spotify is what their end operating margin is going to look like. And here's the challenge. 80% of Spotify's costs right now are content costs, and their content costs are different from Netflix. Netflix actually buys the content and plays these almost the equivalent of content commitments for the future. On Spotify, it pays for songs as they get streamed, which is good and bad. It's good because it reduces their fixed costs, bad because it means that that cost is going to be very difficult to bring down. If you buy into Spotify's push that they're going to push that to, that they're going to push their gross margins to 35%, you can get up to about 20, 25 billion. I don't think they can. I don't see how they, because right now their margin is 21%. They'll have to take 14% away from music and labels, from the artists and labels to get there. 
My estimate of that is probably 12, 14 billion, which is not bad for a company which really hasn't had much to show for it. But I think from an intrinsic value standpoint, it's 12 to 14 billion. If you're pricing Spotify, it's a different game. It depends who you price them against. They look cheap. If you look against Netflix, they look expensive. You look against Pandora. So you're going to hear a lot of talk about Netflix as the comparison, not Pandora. But that's the way the IPO game plays out. Now, I'm not that concerned that there aren't many bankers involved in the IPO. It's not, it's not a big issue. But I'm concerned that none of the cash from the IPO is going to be kept in the company. That's going to be used to cash out because it's more of a signal than anything else that people want to move the company rather than stay in. That's not a good sign. I, I get asked at least four questions about Bitcoin every week from you know, different news sources. And um, the question I often get asked is, is Bitcoin undervalued? And I have to tell them the truth, which is that you can't value Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not an asset. To value an asset, you have cash flows. Bitcoin is a currency. Currencies cannot be valued. You can't value the U.S. dollar. You cannot value the Swiss franc. You cannot value Bitcoin. You can price them. You can price them as currencies. And we know what makes for a good currency. It's a good medium of exchange, and it's a good store of value. Bitcoin is succeeding as a speculative investment. It's failing as a currency. Failing as a currency in what sense? I don't see too many places taking Bitcoin. It's not a good medium of exchange. And I'm not sure how good a store of value it is because 10 years from now, I don't know what cryptocurrency is going to dominate the roost. So right now, Bitcoin's big challenge is if it cannot make it as a currency, I don't see how you can justify paying what you are. If it can make it as a global currency, then I think you can, so you can pay 1,000, 10,000, 12,000, whatever you want to pay for it. But I think that is the challenge you face with Bitcoin is what's the right pricing for Bitcoin given how badly it's behaving as a currency right now. I think we're again voluntarily something that we, you know, we've again been spoiled by a few years of this, you know, low volatility, low risk environment. We're seeing a return to normalcy. Again, it might look high only because our frame of reference is the last five years. When you look at the VIX, you look at volatility, we're getting back to where things used to be. Maybe this is happening across the economy. Maybe we're returning back to a more healthy, normal economy, and it's freaking us out. Because we're so used to this strange economy we've been in the last 10 years that we can't deal with an economy that looks normal. I mean, there are analysts who, who've never seen a 4% P-bond rate in their lifetime, who don't even know what 3% inflation looks like. And they might have to get used to that. I mean, and, and that's a, it's a healthy thing. I mean, this is why, you know, we've been trying to, to get the economy turned around. Now that it's turned around, we complain. I mean, markets always find something to complain about. Welcome to have the slides, and I'm the easiest person in the world to find it. They want to email me directly and ask me questions, but that's fine too. So.